1: One of the biggest changes in the world of finance is the move to fintech and mobile banking in recent years. But how and why did the world move from traditional banking to controlling and moving their money from their mobile phone? Well, today's guest knows all about it. Anne Bowden, CEO of Starling Bank and author of Banking On It, How I Disrupted an Industry. And she speaks to Linda Yu about how she went from the world of traditional banks to starting her own and being at the forefront of the fintech revolution. We hope you enjoy it. And now let's go to the episode.
2: People get dispirited when they've written 10 emails and don't get an answer. I wrote hundreds and hundreds of emails. Lots and lots of people have ideas. It's the execution and the hard work and the resilience that makes a difference. Alan took his jacket off, gave me a cup of coffee and said, look, I'll, I'm here to
0: help you. Sometimes friendship like that is what you really need. Hello, I'm Linda Yu, an economist and broadcaster. Welcome to this episode of the Intelligence Squared Business Podcast. I'm joined by Anne Bowden, CEO and founder of Starling Bank, to talk about her great new book, Banking on It, How I Disrupted an Industry. She founded Starling Bank, the UK's first digital-only bank in 2014, which was named Best British Bank, three years running at the British Bank Awards in 2018, 2019, and 2020. Increasingly frustrated with the inertia within the banking industry, Anne decided to shake things up herself by doing something totally radical, setting up her own bank, not just any bank, one without any physical branches. It's an app. So all banking is done on your mobile phone. Welcome, Anne. And tell me more about what makes Starling Bank different.
2: Well, thank you very much for inviting me. Yes, the reason for Starling is that I felt banks were looking backwards, weren't using the best technology, had very, very old-fashioned ways of dealing with customers. And I decided to start a bank that was on the customer side, that was doing great things with technology, and was going to actually try and help people manage their
0: money better. Um, so I just want to say a bit more about this digital only and a bank that's an app. So you have no physical branches. So how do you accept physical deposits like checks and things. So tell me about the post office and your recent innovation due to COVID. Yeah, well, everything, um,
2: darling, can be done on your mobile phone. Uh, We also have a, a web version that you can use with your laptop. But the idea is that many, many banks make you go into a branch to do the routine or the mundane things everything at starling can be done remotely everything can be done very very safely on your mobile phone and if you have cash to pay in uh, you can go into a post office we are connected to all the post offices and you can um, pay in cash over the counter and you can have a receipt and see the money in your account before you lose leave the counter and we also have a lot of innovations about checks and you can pay in checks using an app um, in your phone where you can scan the check uh, and it automatically goes into your account. And what we've been doing recently is really listening to our customers in this pandemic and coming up with new solutions to help them with their day-to-day lives. For example, we launched a connected card for people that were self-isolating and needed to give a card to people helping with their shopping. And we did that and it was recommended by NHS volunteers. And we we really got great feedback because we were there listening to our customers during this horrible time and responding with useful products. A thing about I'm really proud of, uh, about at Starling is that we do things that customers want. We do things that are for the benefit of our customers, not because it's just convenient for us as bankers. How convenient not to even have
0: to deposit a bank physically, especially during COVID. Um, so it's great to see these innovations. Your publisher has sent uh, this blurb accompanying your book. The quote is, the book is a success story about a woman in her 50s who dared to do something different, just as most people are starting to put their feet up. So Anne, why did you decide to leap <laughs> um,
2: good story. I have had a long career in banking. I was um, many, many years working in all the big banks in big technology roles and operations roles. I'm a computer scientist and chemist by background. So I entered the banking industry in the early 80s with a computer science degree. And I worked in many big banks around the world, whether it was the UK or Switzerland or the Netherlands. But my last job before deciding to do this big jump into entrepreneurship was as chief operating officer for Allied Irish Banks in, in Dublin. And I went in to rescue the bank after the financial crisis. And it was a pretty a pretty tough um, assignment. You know, it was a lot of um, making people redundant and and collecting on loans. And it was a pretty dispiriting role. And I spent my time going around the world talking to banks in other countries, asking them about what they were going to do to make, well, to repair the damage from the past and turn their organisations into more relevant banks for the people in 2013. And I came to the conclusion that their plans were pretty boring and they weren't being ambitious. They weren't embracing all the new things that are going on in the world. And I decided that somebody should start a bank. Wouldn't it be (laughs) great if somebody decided to start a new bank? And at the same time, I was basically counting the years before I would finished that five-year stint in, in AIB. And then one day I realized that that person starting that bank was going to be me because I was afraid. The only thing I was really afraid of was at that point was that it would be a failure and people laugh at me. And I realized if you set out to do something that's really audacious, really ambitious, and if you fail, it's not the end of the world. And that was the moment I decided I was going to start a
0: bank. You write that you were worried about failing if you started a bank. So you briefly considered starting a dress shop instead. And then you realize it was a cutthroat business. So you went with starting a bank. But you had no team, no office and no money except for your life savings. So just tell me how you overcame um, your fear of failure.
2: It is very humbling when you know you go from a job where you have lots and lots of people and a nice office and a support structure and something on your business card that says who you are to having nothing. And I remember the time sort of knocking on doors in the city, and you know, in I think it was January, February 2014, where I was trying to talk people into helping me, and it was pretty downbeat, you know, it was. I was wandering into people's offices saying I got this great idea for a new sort of bank and this sort of bank is going to have a new business model. It's going to be fair to customers. It's not going to find customers when they get something wrong. It's going to go beyond the customer's side. It's going to have new technology and we weren't going to buy technology. We're going to build it all. And I just need a few hundred million. And, and they, didn't, they didn't want that. you know. They, they, they were very sceptical. So I went from door to door asking for support for this proposition until people started getting it. People started realising that the industry had to change. Something had to be done. And I started getting momentum around me of people who also believed in this. But for many years, I hadn't raised money, and I worked out of other people's
0: offices and customer lounges at the big consulting firms. It was a pretty humble existence. Something else that you managed, which struck me, was even naming your bank uh, was a challenge, and Starling is what um, it's called now. But tell me how you narrowly avoided being Anne Bowden, CEO of Carrot Bank. Yes, well, the name is so, so <laughs> difficult. Lots um, and lot of ideas.
2: And yeah, yeah, we did do a search on Carrot Bank. I was not too happy about standing up on the platform and saying, good afternoon, everybody. My name is Anne Bowden and I'm the CEO of Carrot Bank. It didn't really have the ring about it. But we, we, we settled on Starling. But Starling is very much a, you know, it's a gregarious bird. It works as a team, elegant. And, and it, you know, invades others' territories. And I thought that it was quite analogous in what we wanted to do to
0: knock those big banks off their purchase. So I guess carrot and stick, was that the background for carrot bank or it's just nobody had trademarked it?
2: No, it was actually <laughs> a whole thing around um, a, a technology tool set at the time. And and people thought it had certain connotations to 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 rabbits actually but uh, but that's a long story that's a long story <laughs>
0: Just, I thought the whole branding thing was another, um, another challenge um, that I'm sure is, is massive for a lot of people thinking of starting their own business. And in fact, one of the great things about your book is that um, you had spent quite a lot of time reading and so I was visiting Silicon Valley So, and you relay um, some of what you learned. So you write that what it takes to make it big as a tech or any entrepreneur, it's not about having a big idea. So just tell us more about that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's all about execution. Lots
2: and lots of people have ideas. Um, and those ideas could be unique, or they could be somebody else's idea, or whatever. It's the execution and the hard work and the resilience that makes a difference. And most um, big successes, uh, weren't the first, you know, sort of, uh, Facebook is not the first social media platform. The, it, it is important to have an idea. Yes. Uh, But some people think that keeping their idea to themselves and uh, that's going to protect their business. No, somebody else can have the idea. A couple of people can have the same idea. It isn't the uniqueness of the idea that's the differentiator. It's the ability to execute that idea.
0: Along those lines, so you write that knowing how to do an existing business better is key to being a disruptor. And that's what successful tech companies share in common, as well as, of course, a tenacious founder. So you heard in Silicon Valley, first find the problem and then offer the solution. So, Anne, you had a long list of problems, didn't you, after three decades um, in banking that could be done better? Maybe just give us a couple.
2: (laughs) Yeah, Ah. The banking industry had become very bureaucratic. Things take a long time and uh, product innovation normally came, you know, a long way down the list. And when big banks decide to innovate, they sometimes come up with a head of innovation or, or have a committee or they decide to have a workshop. These things don't lead to real innovation and real creativity. It is very, very difficult to manufacture either agility or creativity in a large organization. But what I wanted to do when I founded Starling was to uh, tackle the big issues of if you are very efficient in your cost base and therefore you can make more profit, but you can share with your customers. So there's more margin for you to actually make sure a customer has a good deal as well. And solving some of those technical issues that make it so difficult for your day-to-day banking. It's surprising how difficult banks make the whole customer journey. One of the things that is very important to us was that customer could actually get an account um, through their app in a few minutes. It wouldn't take them hours to complete the forms. And one of the things that's very relevant in the in the current pandemic situation is that people want to have everything done remotely. People don't necessarily want to take a day off work and go into a branch, especially if they're a small business. So what was really key for us is being able to do everything quickly um, and uh, in a uh, friction-free way. And it also be very, very innovative and creative. And these are the sorts of things we've tackled at Starling. And I think we're very successful with that.
0: You wrote about when you had your aha moment and when you... Uh, concluded that your new bank didn't have to do everything, just one or two things really well. So there's a simplicity uh, in what it is that you've put forward. And I thought the other, and you've just described it, um, existing banks have infrastructure. So a lot of the apps are sort of add-ons, whereas yours is a from scratch creation, which means that you can do a lot of the speed and remove a lot of the friction. So it's, it is the great unbundling um, that's been enabled by tech, which you which you write about which is seen in a, a number of these startups you know but and you know you're not starting an online bookstore you are starting a bank so you need a banking license and there's tons of regulations around that and I was struck um, by the catch-22 you found yourself in which is you can't get a banking license until you raise money but you can't raise money without a banking license so just tell me how you managed that.
2: Yes um, in 2013 March 2013 Post the financial crisis, the FSA, the precursor to the PRA and the FCA, came up with a new way of actually launching a bank. And they came up with a two-phase process whereby you could raise a little bit of money if you had an authorization with restrictions. So basically, they'd give you a license on the condition that you could raise further money. And this was the process we went through. Uh, But despite all of that, getting a banking license took us about three and a half years. It took me three, uh, two years to raise money. Uh, it took us another six months to from uh, presenting our completed application. And that was two or three big boxes full of paper and they needed paper. And then it was a year to get ready and to prepare all our systems and test all our systems. So starting a bank is very difficult because the hurdle for being a ha- bank is very, very high. Other businesses can launch, And if something goes wrong, they can close. A bank is, the balances are protected by the Financial Services Compensation Scheme. So all the balancing and start balances for consumers and small businesses in Starling are guaranteed up to £85,000. So that means the regulator and the government have a big stake in making sure that only um, banks that, that, have a big uh, chance of surviving um, are authorized and therefore the hurdle is very very high so before we could launch to to customers we had to do an awful lot we had to do a lot of preparation lots of planning lots of building of systems and then testing of systems but that's that's correct. I mean, we don't want to be in a situation where, you know, we have banks authorized and not capable of serving their customers. So the hurdle was very high. It was really, really tough to get a license. And I was ever so proud when we got the license.
0: Yeah, you write about it very well in the book. Refreshing emails. I I, I started to worry about your email speed at different points in the book (laughs) as you were just waiting for the regulator's email to land. So you finally found it on their website, which I thought was also a great tale. It was also a great tale about how your long list of contacts helped you. So you managed to get work from top firms like KPMG, PwC, Clifford Chance, Dell, WPP on contingency. So you didn't actually pay them as they were doing the work. It just reminds me of why so many entrepreneurs are actually not like Mark Zuckerberg, but are actually people with experience and know the sector. Um, so just be, um, maybe just to get a, you know, a story from you about one of your breaks, for instance, how you landed WPP, the world's largest marketing communication <laughs> business without paying them.
2: Uh, yeah, um, well, I think it's a question of, in, throughout this process, it was all about reaching out to people saying that you, you you needed help. I I think that um, the situation with, with WPP and with Martin Sorrell, we were, I desperately wanted some help with marketing. And I, I s- approached investment bankers and Rothschilds came back to us and said, uh, I gather you want some help, Anne? And I said, yeah, I need to find somebody in marketing that can give me a hand. And they and they came back a couple of days later, will Martin Sorrell will do? I thought, yeah, he'll do. He knows a bit about Martin. <laughs> uh, and and we, we managed to have um, uh, Martin Sorrell, um, who was very, very kind to help us out. But you don't know until you ask. And one of my, my advice to entrepreneurs and people starting businesses, uh, there's certain things that certain attributes we have or contacts we have um, that we can leverage. It was very difficult for me to, you know, go to the the typical accelerator and hang out and and raise finance that way. But I wasn't shy about asking for favors. And but you have to realize that you people people get dispirited when they've written ten emails and they don't get an answer. I wrote hundreds and hundreds of emails. You know, in a week I would perhaps do. 80, 90 emails, And eventually you get something back in return. That's what entrepreneurship is all about. You know, it's saying you do things that are not logical, you know, sort of the majority of businesses don't succeed, but you have to keep on trying.
0: And the more people are trying, the harder you try. Are the better businesses we have you also picked up i thought a number of good tips in addition to what you just said in terms of um, how entrepreneurs need to have this mindset almost so there's a great story you tell and i've got to get you to tell it which is um the fake it until you make it so tell me about if you don't have an office uh how, how do you end up um what story did you hear uh, yeah, would yeah. who gave you advice yeah. about that. <laughs> yeah, there's a
2: um uh, basically I was given advice um from a quite important Welsh um entrepreneur uh, Sir Terry Matthews who, who who lives in Canada. And you know, he's he's a made of you know a couple of billion in in the telecoms industry. And uh, and he told me that when I phoned him up one day, uh, well, rather, When I eventually got the conversation going with him and, and I was on the phone with him and he said, where are you sitting now? Where are you now? And I said, I'm, ho- I'm at home. Uh, OK, he said, well, wrong. Um, you know, you should have you, you should have you, you need to be in an office. And if you're not in an office, you need to pretend you're in an office. And when somebody actually wants to speak to you, they need to be able to get through to you by going to three other people. Right. If you if you don't fake it until you make it, you'll never get there. Now, I had a bit of problem pretending, to be honest, Uh, but his advice to me was that you have to appear to be something to achieve what you need to achieve. I don't think that goes down very well in today's world, but many businesses,
0: including Terry, have made it because of that sort of technique. You said he told you um, (laughs) that if somebody rang, it would just be a pretend receptionist who says, oh, yes, so-and-so is in a conference right now. May they call you back.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's great.
0: So, Anna, I want to take you to um, a bit about the early part of 2015 and just kind of take you through some of the challenges um, that you had. And in fact, I want to start with this because, you know, you've talked about how hard it was to start, but you ended up lining up a number of top firms and it looked like, you know, you were getting close to getting a banking license. But then in early 2015, um, your chief technology officer, Tom Blumfield, who was with you uh, pretty much from the start, abruptly resigned just as you were getting close to getting that license. So just tell me um, about uh, this, what you describe as a near-death experience, which, um, again, may be new to a lot of entrepreneurs, but um, you said it's actually not uncommon for startups. Hmm. Well, I'd started in January 2014
2: and had managed to talk lots of quite important city people into funding um, work for me on a contingency basis. And I was making quite a lot of traction until September, uh, when I felt I needed a somebody from the startup scene to join us. And uh, uh, an old colleague, Tom Blomfield, uh, joined me in September 2014. And in 2015, when, when uh, we had funding lined up, those funders decided to pull out. And we quickly got some new money set up and when the new money was sort of there to be, you know, signed, Tom came to me and said that he was going to resign, which meant that we wouldn't be able to bring that funding in, which meant that I'd have to leave everybody go, which meant that it'd be very, very difficult to start again. And in that period... Tom left and he took the rest of the team with him. And I was left with a substantial amount of contingent fees to pay, no team, and a rather horrible article in the Financial Times about the team sort of flying the, um, the nest, so to speak, and going off to, ch- to start
0: a competitor bank. That was a very, very difficult time for me. So you write about it um, in the book and you describe yourself as last woman standing. Uh, So how did you rebuild the entire team? The
2: day I was on my own in the office, basically doing people's P45s, people had left and and I was sort of organizing the admin. A colleague that had worked with me a few years before, Alan Chandler, came in to have a cup of coffee with me and I explained the predicament I was in. You know, I had a business that was going to take funding. Um, I would had a resignation, which meant the funding had fallen through and I'd lost the whole team. And I now had a problem to solve. And Alan took his jacket off, gave me a cup of coffee and said, look, I'll, I'm here to help you. And Alan worked for a year with me Uh, at at no salary in order to start the business again. And sometimes friendship like that is what you really need. Um, It was, yeah, he came in at a time when things could have folded and we
0: allowed the business to start all over again. In fact, um, within a few months, uh, you did rebuild your team, but money continued to be a challenge. And you give this fascinating statistic, uh, which is that 99% of investments went to male entrepreneurs in their 30s. And you were a 54-year-old woman. So tell me how you raised the funds. And you have to tell us what the yacht was like in the Bahamas, of course. (laughs) (laughs) um, This was This is quite a story.
2: Um, I was trying to raise money. It was two years in, I was still raising money. The team had been built up again. So we were, you know, we were raring to go again. But um, I didn't have the money to put the banking license application in. And I was desperately trying to raise the money from various venture capitalists and private equity firms. And I'd been having calls from um, a private office in the Bahamas for several weeks. And I didn't know any investors in the Bahamas. So I wasn't going to return them, the calls, but eventually somebody contacted me and said, you've got to return this call because this gentleman is very serious and he has the money. Anyway, I end up flying to the Bahamas and um, meeting a gentleman called Harry McPike. And Harry McPike is an algorithmic trader who is Austrian, um, very serious, very diligent, still codes, uh, is very, very capable in finance and technology. And he interrogated me really for four days um, in his office, asking me lots and lots of questions about the business, asking me about banking regulation, asking me about all the spreadsheets, quite an intensive conversation. And then one evening, uh, and at four thirty, we 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 go to his boat, and at four thirty, we we sort of board his his mega yacht, and one evening, he offered me forty eight million pounds for sixty six percent of my company, and I took a deep breath, and we click clinked sort of champagne glasses. As I said, yes, I had an investor, but I'd also given away two thirds of the company. But I had 48 million to build the best technology in the world, to build the best bank in the world.
0: And I was quite excited. Um, I, I think per day and that must work out to be one of the highest fund per day you did this in four days in the Bahamas that's absolutely astounding I want to I want to just come back to uh, to Tom um, and the new bank that he started for a moment before we talk about and um, where your business is currently um, at so he started a bank eventually called Monzo you had a bit of fun buying their domain name didn't you? Yes. Um Monzo. Um well Tom left,
2: Tom Bromfield left to to create um our rival, you know, the the, the bank Monzo. And they originally called the bank Mondo, uh, but somebody already had that name. Um they should have called it Carrot Bank, I think. Um anyway, so uh they They had to change their name from Mondo to Monzo, and they had a competition to to define the name. But I found out just before they announced the name to the public uh, that they were going to call the bank Monzo. And they didn't actually buy all the other domain names. They only bought monzo.com. They didn't buy GetMonzo. So I couldn't help myself. I bought GetMonzo and various other similar similar sounding websites, and they had a big reception in their offices to launch the new name. And when they launched the new name, we also launched a website which said GetMonzo.com. Congratulations on the rename, uh, rebrand. You know, lots, <laughs> lots of love from Anne. And it caused a bit of a stir. Um, lots of people at Stalin thought it was a bit risky, you know, <laughs> but I really wanted to I wanted to turn the quite difficult relationship between the two companies into a bit of fun, where we could be friendly rivals. And I hope people saw it that way.
0: Um, it, the story has a good ending, doesn't it? So, Anne, why don't you tell yeah. us what happened in the end? <laughs> yeah, um, We
2: basically um, gave, gave all the, the, the main names back to Monzo and gave a, a very, very big donation to a charity.
0: So I want to um, talk about the very fast growth that you've had in actually quite a short period of time. So I'm sure after you got over your shock of getting 48 million pounds from a trip to the Bahamas, you ended up launching your bank. You received a million pounds in current account deposits in just one month. And then I think what I found extraordinary in the story is, you know, you started, you launched a business account and you ended up winning a hundred million pound grant for your business account. So just um, <laughs> tell us, tell us the yeah. story. Anna. <laughs> yeah, story. These, these numbers seem large
2: um, at the time, but now they're quite small to us. We, to give you an idea, we now have four billion pounds worth of deposits, one and a half billion of lending. <laughs> and, and nearly two million of accounts so so things have really grown since then, but there was a, a competition to um, be awarded a hundred million pound grant that competes against the big bank. Uh, the origin of this was that um, in the financial crisis, RBS took government funding they took funding from the eu they took funding from the, the uh, treasury. And they had to give something up in return for taking that funding, which could have been anti-competitive. And they were told to sell 300 branches. And they named these branches Williams and Glynns. And they tried to separate out Williams and Glynns from RBS. And that process was very, very difficult to do. It took many, many years. And in the end, RBS said, well, Well, perhaps it never happened. What if we just give you seven hundred and fifty million into a fund, and you can give it to our competitors, and you can leave us off the hook for separating these branches? And that is what happened. They put this money into a fund, and you had to apply for the fund and prove that you could compete with RBS and Barclays, whatever. And we won a hundred million from that fund, and it wasn't a. It's no debt, and there's no. You don't have to. It's no equity. Um, It's highly monitored. It's monitored very, very closely. We have to spend the money exactly as um, we were told to spend the money and agreed to spend the money. But it's allowed us to build fantastic technology for small businesses. And that is one of the things we're now known for. We have a great small um, business business offering. Nearly a thousand customers come to us every single day. And they're growing very fast. And it's because of the fact that we're putting so much investment and so much focus on building
0: the best possible bank for small businesses. I mean, the numbers you're talking about, you're now running, running a multi-billion pound bank um, and things um, you know, just seem like they're, um, they're continuing. Um, but I found it striking in your book that you um, are not resting on your laurels. In fact, you write... There is no triumphant denouement for an entrepreneur, especially in tech. Businesses can change drastically. So you mentioned that YouTube started as a dating app. Groupon was a charitable platform and Slack was once a video game called Glitch. So can I ask you, looking ahead, you know, where's your head at with all of this? Well,
2: we have grown much faster than we ever thought we would. We are now a retail bank and a business bank. We also provide services to other organisations and other fintechs. We have a European strategy um, and we're currently working on um, a market entry strategy for many European countries. So we're still a bank. Um, We're far more of a technology company than a typical bank. But I think our ambition has grown. We have been a we have benefited from the move to digital that we've all experienced over the last six, nine months. Every single industry has been impacted by the pandemic. And some of them have been really adversely impacted. Uh, but we had a move from the high street to um, e commerce platforms and delivery systems. And this has happened with banking as well. People didn't want to go into branches. There's been a huge move towards uh, digital banking. And we have benefited from that. We've also done our bit to get business loans into the hands of small businesses. We've done a billion and a half of lending to small businesses in a short amount of time. And this is all about being relevant. We've had a big change in society in the last, well, since March. And I think some of that's for the good. And we must, as organizations, Starling and other organizations, keep listening to our customers, figuring out what's relevant, what's not relevant, and changing and developing so that we can be there and we can build viable business models. Uh, We became profitable for the first time last month. So we're now monthly profitable. So we're one of these unique organizations that hide growth and profitable. And I think that's the secret
0: of a long term, sustainable, viable business. Before we wrap up, just a couple more uh, questions um, for you. First one is, as a female boss, you write that women suffer from boiled egg syndrome you're either too hard or too soft, but never quite right. So, how do you manage that? You learn to live with it, and um, you will always have criticism.
2: You will always have feedback that you're doing something wrong, because being a woman, um, you know, being from any sort of minority group, uh, people set very, very high expectations. Uh, yep, you'll be criticised for all sorts of things. It doesn't matter. Set your
0: targets very high, work hard, and you'll eventually get there. Thank you. And finally, Anne, what tips would you share? What do you want people to take away after listening um, to this podcast if they're thinking about becoming a disruptive um, entrepreneur? When I started this, people
2: thought it wasn't possible. People didn't think it was possible to build a bank from scratch with very, very new technology to get a banking license and to raise the money to convince people to help you, um, to chart out that vision and talk people into buying that vision. People said that customers would never switch current account. We're now competing with the big banks in the UK. Barclays are our competitors, Lloyds, HSBC. It, It is possible to do the things that people tell you are very difficult, but unless it's really difficult, unless it's hard, unless it's really stretching, you're not going to change the world. So, ambitious plans are good
0: plans as well, and don't be talked out of those plans. I think that's a great note to end on, a bit of tenacity and resilience, um, I think, are, are terms um, that come to mind And when hearing your story and, and reading your book. Thank you very much uh, to Anne Bowden. Uh, do pick up her book banking on it, how I disrupted an industry. So even though you might think you know the successful ending, I would just stress it's a riveting tale with suspenseful moments, even if you know where it's headed. So I would suggest um, everyone listening to just pick it up and pick up some tips about maybe taking that leap yourself and how to do it and to become the next disruptor. So thank you very much again to Anne, and thank you all for tuning in. For more business podcasts, please go to intelligencesquared.com. I'm Linda Yu.